Last Lord's Day, we noted that we could no more return to using instruments in our worship service than we could return to burning incense, cleansing ourselves at the laver, lighting candles, presenting the showbread, in effect, reinstituting all of the shadows of the ceremonial law. The use of instruments in Old Covenant worship, dear ones, was as closely identified with the Levitical priesthood as the altar, the offering of bulls and goats, and the temple itself. In fact, according to Second Chronicles chapter 29, verses 27 through 28, the priests and Levites there played, it says, the instruments that were ordained by God through David, specifically over the sacrifices and only during the time in which the sacrifices were offered. When they began, they began playing. When the sacrifice ended, they stopped playing. Now, when did the Old Covenant priesthood cease? When did all of the aspects of ceremonial worship in the temple cease, including the playing of David's instruments over the sacrifice? <clears throat> when our great high priest offered himself as that final sacrifice upon God's altar, when the veil in the temple was rent by God, when the land was darkened, when Christ hung upon the cross, and the land was shaken by a mighty earthquake, then the sacrifice to end all sacrifice ceased. And so did instruments. When Christ, the Lamb of God, cried out, It is finished! All instruments played over sacrifices ceased. For all sacrifices at that point ceased. Dear ones, if the shadows of the Old Covenant are still here today, that tells us that Christ's work upon the cross is not complete. However, if the shadows are past, the body, the fullness has come, and we enjoy now the fullness of salvation through Christ. Thus, dear Christian, you must have the same kind of clear New Testament warrant to introduce instruments in worship today as would be required to introduce again the temple and Levitical priesthood into New Covenant worship. That same kind of clear New Testament warrant. <clears throat> what I'd like to do, this is our last sermon in the whole series of worship and the last one uh, on instruments. And I'd like to... First of all, give to you just a, a summary. Uh, I gave a little bit last Lord's Day, but I'd like to just complete that summary of some of the important uh, church history regarding this important subject. And I can say, I think, very clearly, there is clear testimony of the church for the first 1,200 years as to the passing away of instruments. Instruments were not used in the church for approximately 1,200 years. Among the works of Justin Martyr, who wrote about 150 A.D., are these words, quote, Plain singing is not childish, but only the singing with lifeless organs. Whence the use of such instruments and other things fit for children is laid aside, and plain singing only retained. The great preacher Chrysostom, born in about 345 A.D., speaking of the use of instruments in the church, declares this, it was only permitted to the Jews as sacrifice was. As of the late 19th century, the Eastern Orthodox churches and all of the, the various Orthodox churches had not used instruments in their worship. That's quite a few churches, quite a few those who fall under the umbrella of Eastern Orthodoxy. <clears throat> I'm not sure as to their present practice, 
but as to the up to the late 19th century they were not used in their services even the Romish church seems not to have introduced the use of instruments into their churches until roughly 1250 AD for Thomas Aquinas the leading Roman Catholic scholar of the Middle Ages notes and I quote our church does not use musical instruments that she may not seem to Judaize. Calvin was clear in his denunciation of instruments in worship. Quote, organs are not fitter for worship than the incense, candlesticks, etc. And the various Reformed churches as well would not corrupt their worship with instruments. The French Reformed Church would not introduce instruments into their worship. The Dutch Reformed Church refused to after the Reformation. In fact, we find the National Synod at Middleburg in 1581 declared against instruments in Holland. And the Synod of Holland and Zeeland in 1594 adopted this strong resolution, quote, that they would endeavor to obtain of the magistrate the laying aside of organs and the singing with them in the churches. The Provincial Synod of Dort also invades severely against their use. <clears throat> the Scottish Presbyterian Church was led in its refusal to introduce instruments by John Knox when Knox said, this principle, speaking of the regulative principle, this principle not only purified the church of human inventions and popish corruptions, but restored plain singing of psalms unaccompanied by instrumental music. Even the Scottish commissioners to the Westminster Assembly wrote this on May the 20th, 1644. We cannot but admire the good hand of God in the great things done here, speaking in London, done here already. Altars are removed. The great organs at Paul's and Peter's cathedrals are taken down. Thus, dear ones, it's no accident that the Westminster Confession of Faith speaks only of, quote, singing of psalms with grace in the heart. There is no singing of psalms with instruments that is mentioned. It was not until the 19th century that old school Presbyterianism began to introduce organs into the church. How the mighty have fallen. It remains for us, dear ones, to consider what the New Testament now says in regard to the use of instruments in the New Covenant. We looked last time at what the Old Testament had to say. Let's consider the evidence in the New Covenant for the use of instruments. <clears throat> and so moving from church history, we're going to now just consider very briefly moving uh, to the uh, area, you might say, kind of intertestamental period of synagogue worship. What do we find in regard to synagogue worship? Well, as you come to the period of Christ's ministry upon the earth, you see that it was his custom to worship in the synagogue each Sabbath, according to Luke 4.16. What would Christ have found in the synagogue worship of that period, of that time? Well, from various resources that are available to us, Robert Gundry has stated and summarized the following with regard to instruments he says quote singing in the synagogue singing was unaccompanied that's not simply one reporter's opinion that is characteristic of scholars singing was unaccompanied in the synagogue in fact the only use of instruments at the synagogue was not during its worship but rather to announce the Sabbath and other feast days, trumpets were blown from the roof of the synagogue, but not during the worship of God. Now, ask yourself, why 
did synagogues not use instruments? From the Old Testament, we know there were no sacrifices. No sacrifices in the synagogue. No instruments played. <clears throat> the absence of instruments in the synagogues is of significance also to our study for where did Paul normally go when he sought to establish a church? But to the synagogues. From the synagogues where instruments were not used, Paul would preach and form churches. And we find in James 2.2, James calls the meeting places of, uh, of churches, he calls them synagogues. They're assembly places. Where Christians met, he said, he calls them synagogues. Now, this was the worship practice that was passed on to the church. From the Old Testament to the synagogues, now to the church. What about the New Testament evidence now regarding instruments? Let's consider what, thirdly, the third main point, let's consider what the New Testament itself says concerning the use of instruments in worship. Turn with me, first of all, to Matthew chapter 26. <clears throat> Some of these passages will be very familiar to us because we looked at them in regard to the issue of song in worship. But we will just briefly make some comments concerning some of these passages. The most natural place to find instruments is where the scripture specifically mentions that songs were sung in worship. One would expect there, if they were going to find them anywhere, that they would find the instruments mentioned in those settings. And in Matthew 26:30, after the Lord's Supper was instituted, this verse Verse 30, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> at the introduction and at the institution of the Lord's Supper, this distinctive New Covenant meal, we know that most scholars agree that it was the great Hallel that was sung by by the Lord and by the disciples, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. But no instruments are mentioned here at all. I would say that if one were looking for a pattern to follow when Christ instituted the new covenant meal, that worship service, one would look at that particular setting to see what would be expected thereafter? We know that Christ proclaimed the word in that setting. We know that Christ prayed in that setting. We know that Christ sung a psalm and led his disciples in that. But we find no instruments mentioned at all. <clears throat> Silence, dear ones. In the New Covenant concerning Acts of worship that were distinctly priestly and Levitical does not assume continuity. Silence, when it comes to ceremonial worship in the New Covenant, does not imply or infer continuity. Silence, when it comes to worship from Old Covenant to New Covenant, infers discontinuity. Now that's different than as it pertains to the moral commandments. Moral commandments from old to new remain the same. We infer continuity of those commandments. God must very specifically say that something has ended. We would assume continuity. But with regard to worship, God must make his will very clear as to what continues in new covenant worship. The second passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 14, <clears throat> in verse uh, 15, and verse 26. Verse 15 says, What is the result then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, I will also sing with the understanding. 
And then again in verse 26. How is it then, brethren? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Now, again, in this particular passage, <clears throat> we see that singing and worship is mentioned. And psalms are the content of what is sung. But there is complete silence as to any singing with instruments. Now, it's important as you look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 14 to note that the emphasis of Paul is really upon edification. The emphasis of worship here is upon understanding. You see, God does not want us to worship him in an unintelligible way. He wants us to be edified, and the only way that we can be edified is if we understand the will and the revelation of God as it goes forth. And so the emphasis upon not speaking in tongues in a language that no one understands, because no one is going to be edified except the person who's speaking it, because he understands what has been given to him by way of revelation from God. That's the reason why we would condemn, for example, a Latin mass. One reason. We might condemn it for many reasons, but we would condemn it for it being even un uh, unintelligible. How can it possibly benefit the people? Because they don't understand. Well, on the same basis... Many Reformed Fathers have made a similar application to the use of unintelligible worship, uh, instruments in worship from this passage. Instruments in New Covenant worship are not used over sacrifices. So what is their meaning? What do they mean? What are they communicating if they're not used over sacrifices as they were in the Old Testament? What are instruments saying to us by way of the will and the revelation of God? Do you understand what an instrument is saying when you're worshiping God? They're like uninterpreted tongues. How much more is the unintelligibility of instruments in worship a problem when they are used without any singing at all. Now, you may have been in worship services, as I've been in worship services, where instruments are used when no one's singing, just kind of as mood music to put you in the right mood. Maybe during prayer, you'll hear the piano or the organ playing. Or perhaps during the uh, 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 distribution of the elements of the Lord's Supper. Or during the offering. What is the instrument saying? It would be far better while the offering, if one includes it in a, in a, um, uh, includes the offering in a worship service, to read a passage of scripture than to play an instrument. It's not communicating anything. Perhaps someone would venture to say, Instruments in worship are symbolic of our joy. I have more to say about the issue of instruments and joy at the conclusion of the sermon. But for now, let me simply point out that in the New Covenant, Christ has only instituted two symbols. The Lord's Supper and Baptism, not three. The Lord's Supper, Baptism and Instruments. Turn with me to the third passage, that's Ephesians chapter 5, <coughs> verse 19. And you can hold your place in Colossians 3.16 as well. <coughs> Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Here again, though there is the command to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, nothing is said in regard to the use of instruments. <clears throat> Remember, dear ones, this silence of instruments in New Covenant worship is especially unusual because of their universal mention throughout temple worship in 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Whenever you find temple worship, you, you always find the use of instruments in that context. And so now we find, as we come to passages where there is singing in the context of worship, complete silence. That seems very strange, not to find any reference at all to instruments. But in Ephesians 5.19, <clears throat> you find these words. Singing and making melody, literally singing and psalming in or with your heart to the Lord. Not singing and psalming with instruments to the Lord, but with your heart to the Lord. The same point is made in Colossians 3.16. Singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. <clears throat> now it's been argued by some brethren that wherever one finds the Greek word, and this is <clears throat> one of the objections <clears throat> that's presented against uh, non, uh, the use of, uh, uh, of non-instrumental music in worship, <clears throat> that wherever one finds the words psalmos, which is psalm, or solo, which is to psalm or to sing psalms, the very word itself by den means to play or to pluck an instrument. So that even when no instrument is specifically mentioned with psalmus or solo, instruments are nevertheless inferred in the very meaning of the word. And so it's futile, basically, at that point, upon... Uh, uh, it's futile for us to try to argue that instruments were not used in New Covenant worship because the very word means that were, uh, instruments were used. <clears throat> that's the objection, that's the argument. And I would simply say uh, it would take a long time to go through all of the evidence, the technical evidence. It's simply not the case. <clears throat> There are pages and pages of documentation to the contrary. If one wants to look into something like Glasgow's Heart and Voice and many other volumes that have gone through all the passages that use the, these words in the Greek Septuagint in the New Testament to demonstrate that that is not the case, that psalmus and solo do not mean uh, the playing of instruments. <clears throat> I would simply ask if that's the case, why does the Word of God specifically in the Old Testament as well as in the New, why does it in the Old Testament where you find these words psalmos and solos in the um, in the Greek Septuagint, why does Though, why do those words sometimes appear with instruments? In, in other words, sometimes it will say, sing psalms with uh, various instruments. But in other occasions, it specifically omits any instrument. Why the need if the very word itself means to play an instrument? This kind of reminds me of how some Baptist brethren attempt to win the debate from the outset over the issue of mode of baptism by defining Greek words baptizo and baptismos to mean immersion. And so you've lost the argument from the outset in trying to debate this issue. Though baptizo is derived from bapto, which means to dip, 
Baptismo or baptizo and baptismos is used in the Greek Septuagint and in Hebrews 9 for sprinkling. The point I'm simply making is that psalmos or solo are defined by the context in which they appear. You can't simply take that word and say that it can only mean this. Or like the dispensationalists who say that Israel can only mean ethnic Israel. It can't mean anything else. Where no instruments are mentioned in those contexts, it must be assumed that no instruments were intended. Where there are instruments used with psalmos and solo, we are to therefore know at that point that they were used. But the word itself does not convey that meaning. <clears throat> Hebrews 13.15 is the next passage. <clears throat> Hebrews 13.15 coming in a very significant book which, which deals with the passing away of the Old Covenant. We find these words, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. <clears throat> Dear ones, here our praise to God is defined as a sacrifice. But no longer a sacrifice with instruments, but rather a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips. You see, dear ones, the old priesthood has been abolished according to Hebrews chapter 7. And chapter 8. The old temple has been abolished according to Hebrews chapter 9. The old altar has been abolished according to Hebrews 13.10 in this very chapter. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The old sacrifices have been abolished according to Hebrews 13.11. And twelve, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. And the old instruments that were played in the temple and in the tabernacle and over the sacrifices by that priesthood have likewise been abolished according to Hebrews 13:15. Therefore, the therefore means based on what he has just said with regard to the, the abolishing of the altar, with regard to abolishing the, the uh, um, uh, sacrifices, the old instruments are abolished as well. And what is left is the fruit of our lips. And the last passage that we want to consider is in Revelation chapter 5. <clears throat> Verse 8 says, <clears throat> Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. <clears throat> and in other passages throughout the book of Revelation, you will find the mention of harps, people playing harps, blowing trumpets. And so there are these references to harps and trumpets, the use of these instruments in Revelation in the, in the letter, in the book of Revelation. But up until the book of Revelation, let's just <laughs> make it very clear that we have not found any clear warrant. All the passages we've considered, no clear warrant for uh, the use of instruments. We have found nothing that would give us any indication that instruments were used in the worship service. 
Now, as we come to Revelation, what are we to conclude from what we have just read? Well, it's contended by many of our brethren that in the heavenly worship that we find in Revelation, you find the pattern for earthly worship. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> there we find the earthly pattern in the heavenly pattern. Well, to apply that principle, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in a way that it was not intended, will lead us to all kinds of problems. The Lord Jesus said there is no marrying nor giving in marriage in heaven. That would uh, exterminate the human race if we were to follow that particular pattern uh, here upon the earth. <clears throat> but as it pertains to worship specifically, you'll recall that in our series on song and worship, we looked at these passages. And so I'll just very briefly summarize what we said at that point. <clears throat> These are symbolic visions that John is receiving here, and it's, you can't emphasize that enough. These are symbolic visions. The church cannot implement the practices of heavenly worship into earthly worship, therefore, without reverting to all the old covenant shadows of worship. Are you to wear crowns and cast them before God? as it says in Revelation 4.10? Are you to offer incense on an altar in worship, as we just read in Revelation 5.8, as it says in Revelation 8.3? Are you to clothe yourselves in white garments and worship God with palm branches, as it says in Revelation 7.9? Are you to use lamps, as we find in Revelation 4.5? Are you to reconstruct the temple and the Ark of the Covenant, and a sea of glass, as we find in Revelation 4, 6, and 11, 19. You see, dear ones, Revelation, the book of Revelation, is a highly symbolic vision which was never intended to be a specific pattern for earthly worship in the New Covenant. Second thing I'd like to say about these passages in Revelation is... <coughs> It must be clear to all who read the symbolic vision of Revelation that the only earthly saint present is John. And John does not participate in any of these specific acts of worship at all. He's simply an observer. If God was binding us to these practices, John, an apostle, would surely have participated in them. If John did not worship using instruments and all that we find in Revelation, why should you? Third point. If Revelation gives warrant, that is the book of Revelation, if it gives warrant for the use of instruments, it must be only the instruments that are specifically mentioned. For David couldn't introduce new instruments that God had not revealed to him. Moses could not have done so. Certainly John could not have done so. We cannot therefore do so. If that's a pattern for our worship, then the only two instruments that can be used are harps and trumpets. Because those are the only two that are spoken of specifically as far as heavenly worship. No organs. No pianos, only harps and trumpets. Fourthly, if the book of Revelation gives warrant for the use of instruments, I would go as far as to say that it also gives warrant for drama in worship because that is all that Revelation is, is one dramatic presentation after another, one vision and you see this acted out, and then it ends. And then you see another one, and it's acted out, and it ends. And so it's very much a dramatic presentation. And finally, about this passage, turn with me to chapter 18. <coughs> 
chapter 18, verses 21-22. This has to do with God's judgment upon the great city, Babylon. And it says in verse 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. I'll stop there. According to Revelation 11.8, this great city that's spoken of is Jerusalem. Where such instruments that are specifically mentioned here were used in temple worship until its destruction by the Roman forces in 70 A.D. Along with all ceremonial worship of the temple which was destroyed, specific instruments these specific instruments were no longer heard in Jewish worship after 70 AD because those instruments were tied to the temple, to the sacrificial system. And Jesus says, through his prophet John, the sound of these instruments will no longer be heard in that great city again. And it's even true in Orthodox Judaism today, in their synagogues to this day, instruments are not used because the temple worship has not continued. Well, this brings us to our conclusion, dear ones. <clears throat> How can you continue to sing the psalms in worship without instruments when there are references in the very psalms you sing to the use of instruments. For example, in Psalm 150, which was read earlier, turn with me there, Psalm 150. Look at all of the instruments that are specifically mentioned in verses 3 and following. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Many people will look at this passage and will say, there you have abundant proof that it is warranted by the Scripture to use instruments in worship. Well, again, as we've noted before, there are no organs that are specifically uh, mentioned. I think that uh, the English translation in the authorized version uh, translates one of the words there, uh, perhaps flutes. I uh, read it out of the New King James as flutes, and perhaps that's translated as organ. But uh, they certainly didn't know uh, the kinds of organs that we now use at that particular point in time. Uh, if anything, uh, what is warranted here is some kind of a band. And thirdly, what we see warranted here is dancing. I believe that in this passage we find, as well as in, in Psalm 149, a real beauty in singing psalms. And I'll explain to you what I mean. We've mentioned many things about the singing of psalms, but I want to just mention one other thing at this point in, in conclusion. Dear ones, you have the joy of singing about specific aspects of Old Covenant worship that are now realized in Christ and in the New Covenant. <clears throat> That's often viewed as being a hindrance to our worship. And we sing the Psalms and it has these Old Covenant ceremonial aspects. 
And uh, uh, that's a hindrance. That's an objection to us singing the Psalms. I would argue quite to the contrary. Whenever I, I sing or read about those old covenant practices, you know what it causes me to do? It causes me to well up with joy that I'm no longer in that system. That my salvation is complete. It's been realized through Christ because they all pointed to the fact that Christ would come. And so whether you sing of the temple in Psalm 5-7 or you sing of the altar in Psalm 43-4 or you sing of the Ark of the Covenant in Psalm 132.8. Or you sing of incense in Psalm 141.2. Or of burnt offerings in Psalm 66.15. Or of the Levitical priesthood in Psalm 132.9. Or of dancing in Psalm 149 and Psalm 150. Or of instruments. Your heart should be shouting with joy because all those shadows have now passed away for your redemption in Christ has been accomplished. You are no longer anticipating your salvation. Rather, dear ones, you are rejoicing in an accomplished and applied salvation, a finished work, something to which you can add nothing. That should bring great joy. You see, dear ones, the dance, the timbrel, the harp that we find in Psalm 149 and all the other instruments that one would find in the Psalms that were used in worship were typical of this joy and rejoicing that is to be present in our worship and in our lives as God's people. And I would ask you, quite honestly, for you to reflect, is the joy of the Lord... Is the contentment of Christ present in your life? Does that characterize your life? Because the absence of in instruments means that your joy is full. Your joy is complete. Joy in the new covenant, dear ones, is not based upon your circumstances. As much as we live that way, joy in the new covenant is not based upon any of your circumstances, regardless of how severe you or myself may view them. James chapter 1 says in verses 2 and 3, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Philippians 4.4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Join the new covenant, dear ones, is based upon not circumstances, but upon the inviolable and breakable certain truth that your salvation in Christ is accomplished. So many people wrestle as to whether one day they're saved, the next day they doubt that they're saved. They go back and forth with regard to some of these subjective things that they're going through. But here is something very objective you can look at, you can take, at, uh, take and see. There are no instruments in our worship of God because our joy is full in a completed salvation. What's, what remains is for you to trust and to believe that. And that's the hardest part for we who are weak human beings to simply believe and take God at his word. If God has taken care of the most difficult thing, saving us and delivering us from all of our enemies, our spiritual enemies, death, sin, hell, Satan, I don't know of enemies, I don't face those kinds of enemies <clears throat> uh, daily. I mean, sin I certainly do, but I don't face come face to face with those kinds of enemies 
uh, on a daily basis, the, the Lord has defeated them for me. But I do face many trials. I do face many difficulties. Now, if I can believe that God has rescued me from the most dangerous of enemies, which threaten my entire well-being, to cast me, body and soul, into hell, I can certainly, by God's grace, trust Him. And I can rejoice in the fact that He has already overcome all of these other trials already through my faith and my confidence in Him. He will deliver me. <clears throat> Where is your joy, dear ones? If your joy is in circumstances, I can guarantee you, you will live a miserable life. If you are up and down on the scale based on your circumstances, you will live a life of despair, despondency, discouragement. But if you rise above those circumstances and you rejoice in the God of your salvation and you put your confidence and your trust in Him who will deliver you, who will keep you, even through the most difficult times, you will have a joy that Jesus says no one can take away. No one. Is that what you desire? I hope that's what you want. A joy that no one can take away. Certainly what I desire. Are you praying for that kind of joy? Are you believing and trusting in Christ who's completed and finished the work of salvation? Because that's what it means, the fact that we have no longer instruments or any of the ceremonial worship in our worship services in the New Covenant. Put your faith and confidence in Him, beloved. He who trusts in the Lord will not be disappointed. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we praise You. We sing to Your glorious name no longer with, with timbrels, no longer with harps and flutes and trumpets, but we sing and praise your name with great joy in the finished work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king. Lord God, I pray that you would take each brother and sister who hears this sermon and that you would lift them above the circumstances in which they are now to have heaven's perspective upon the trials they're enduring now. We pray, Father, that they would find that their only source of joy is Jesus Christ. That no human being can truly make us happy. We cannot find our joy in our husband or our wife. We cannot find true lasting joy in our jobs, in our success, in our health, or even in our freedoms. In fact, we'll never enjoy all of those blessings unless we first learn to enjoy you. It is only in enjoying Christ that we can enjoy anything that Christ gives us. For if we cannot enjoy the giver, we cannot enjoy the gift. And so, Father, help us to go back to the ABCs of the Christian life. To seek to know and to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt who is our joy. We pray, Father, that you would speak to your people, that you would lift them up and bear them upon eagles' wings. For Jesus' sake, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. 
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.